Our passage this morning is Romans 4, verses 6 through 12. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised, he received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised, so that righteousness would be counted to them as well, and to make him the father of the circumcised who are not merely circumcised, but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. Can we just bow in a word of prayer together? The Bible says this, for the righteous will never be moved. He will be remembered forever. He is not afraid of bad news. His heart is firm, trusting in the Lord. His heart is steady. He will not be afraid. Lord, we will not fear like others fear. We will not panic like others panic. Lord, you have secured for us a righteousness that we don't deserve in an eternity in your presence. Lord, the worst thing that can happen to us in this world, maybe, is that we die. But if we die, we win. We win. And it's not a victory we purchased in our works. It's a victory you have purchased by your death. And we celebrate that in this church, Lord. Lord, I pray, regardless of the circumstances that we go through in this life, that we will live in the truth of that victory. God, if there's somebody in the room right now whose faith is small, whose fear is great, God, change that equation for them today. May they see your goodness. As Ryan prayed earlier, may they see your sovereignty even in the midst of this great uncertainty, we pray. And Lord, we confess as a church that we're going to follow you. We're going to put our faith in you, put our hope in you, no matter what happens in this world. If you agree with that, church, then just say amen with me. Amen. Amen. Good. We'll go ahead and take a seat, everybody. If you would, let's turn to the passage that Shane just read, Romans chapter 4, verses 6 through 12 is where I'll be today. We're in the midst of our series, Holy Redeemed, and we're looking at these middle chapters of the book of Romans, and we're seeing not only that we are holy, unholy, Romans 1 through 3, but we are also holy, redeemed. Not by our own works, but by our faith. 
Let me start with this as you're turning to Romans 4. There's an old chestnut that goes like this. It's a story about these two frogs, a skinny frog and a fat frog who were looking for food. And one day when they were looking for food, they jumped into a bucket of milk. And that's bad. You don't want to do that as a frog. And so that put their lives in jeopardy. And the the sides of the bucket were so slippery that the frogs couldn't get out. So in this bucket of milk, the fat frog decides, well, it's not even worth it to try. I'm just going to die. We're dead. It's over. And the skinny frog says, no way. I'm not giving up. Don't give up. Let's keep swimming. Let's keep swimming. Let's keep paddling. Let's keep paddling. He was like Dory from Finding Nemo. Just keep swimming. Well, the fat frog said, that's nonsense. I, I can't go on any longer. And he gave up and he died in that milk. But the skinny frog kept paddling and paddling and paddling. In fact, he paddled all night long. And pretty soon, the milk underneath his feet started to harden and become solid. And he churned that milk into butter. And eventually, the butter was so solid, solid enough anyway, that the skinny little frog was able to jump out of the bucket and save himself. He saved himself. He rescued himself by his work, 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 work. You know, during the Second World War, Winston Churchill used to quote that story. And he used to tell people, Britain, England, we are that skinny frog. We are going to work, 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 work. We're not going to give up. We're going to tirelessly fight against the Nazi, Nazi regime. We'll never give up. We'll never surrender. We shall fight on the beaches. We shall fight on the landing grounds. We shall fight in the fields and the streets. We shall fight in the hills. Y'all have heard this before, right? Winston Churchill. You guys know I love Winston Churchill. And I love that aspect of him. He wouldn't allow Britain to give up. And I'm glad he didn't. I'm glad Britain didn't, didn't give up. Our world is a better place today because of that. But let me be clear about this. And I kind of set you up with that illustration. You are not that skinny frog when it comes to your own salvation. You are not. You're not the fat frog either. You're like, sure, that's good. You're not defeatist and giving up and just quitting on life. I will tell you this, though. This might hurt your feelings. You're more like the fat frog than you are like the skinny frog. In other words, you've got to get to the end of yourself. You got to stop working. You got to stop churning. You got to give it over to somebody else who is able to rescue you because you cannot rescue yourself. That's the message that Paul is preaching in Romans chapter 4. And instead of just giving up, giving over to death and despair like the fat frog, instead of working to overcome your sin like the skinny frog, the Apostle Paul points us in a different direction. He points us in the way of faith. You believe in the work of another in order to be saved. That's what you do. That's the essence of the Christian life, the Christian faith. The reformers captured this in a slogan. Here's the slogan, a succinct theological synopsis. Sola fide. Sola fide. Say that with me now. Sola fide. By faith alone. That's what I want to talk to you about this morning. You are saved by faith alone. Three things this morning, Harvest. Three answers to this question. This is in your notes. Why is sola fide? 
Why is salvation by faith alone so important to us as Christians? I'll give you three answers to that question and then we're done. Here's number one. Sola fide, this great doctrine. Sola fide is the source of spiritual blessing. It's the source of spiritual blessing. Paul says this in verse six. He says, just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Now let's unpack this a little bit. Let me, let me stop and talk about that just as, because that just as is important in verse six. If you remember from last week, this is a connection to Father Abraham. And Paul talked about Father Abraham and how he was justified by faith and not by works. Just as a reminder, look at verse 2 with me in chapter 4. Paul says this, If Abraham was justified by works, which he wasn't, then he has something to boast about, which he doesn't. Not before God, anyway. That was, that was Paul's whole argument in the first five or, verses. Abraham has nothing to brag about as it relates to his works, because he wasn't saved by works, he was saved by faith. And he doesn't boast in his works. And if Abraham was here this morning and said, how are you doing, Harvest Decatur? Let me tell you something. He would not, in front of you, boast in his works. He would boast in the Lord, just like we have boasted in the Lord with our songs for the last 30 minutes. He would sing with us and he would celebrate with us. And when he heard me say sola fide, he would say, amen. That's what saved me. And if he got a chance to preach, he would tell you sola fide. You're saved by faith alone. Just like I was, Harvest Decatur. This is our spiritual heritage as Christians. It goes all the way back to the book of Genesis and Abraham. We'll get back to Abraham in a moment. But now, verse 6, Paul momentarily transitions to another great Old Testament leader, another famous hero of the Jewish faith, the great king of Israel, King David, the prototype of the coming Messiah. Paul says Abraham confirms the truth about justification by faith. You know what? David does too. King David does too. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works, this is a quote now from David. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven. Blessed. Blessed are what? Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Have your lawless deeds been forgiven, Harvest Decatur? Have they now? Have your sins been covered? That's the source of blessedness. You might think this morning, you might have came in this morning and said that, you know, the worst thing in our world right now is COVID-19. It's the worst thing. The most important thing for us right now is to find a cure for COVID-19. It's, it's the most important thing in the world. It's the most dangerous thing in the world right now that this is spreading all over the place. I'll tell you right now, that is not the most dangerous thing in this world. The most dangerous thing in this world is your sin that won't lead to your physical death only, but to your eternal death. That's what you need a cure for even more than COVID-19 or any other infectious disease. And here's the good news. You ready for some good news? It's better than anything on the news right now. Jesus has provided a cure for what ails you. Jesus has provided the vaccination for you and for your sin by his blood. Your sins can be covered. Your transgressions can be forgiven. Y'all with me this morning? This is good. 
This is what we need to hear right now. And, and David spoke of these things, by the way, 3,000 years ago. And a thousand years before Christ came, before his death and his resurrection. Romans 4, 7 through 8, it's actually a direct quote from Psalm 32, verses 1 and 2. David wrote 3,000 years ago, Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts. No iniquity. Hashtag blessed. Put that on your Twitter feed and send it out. This is what it means to be blessed. And it's totally different from what the world says about being blessed. And the reason that David said this, I'll tell you why David said this and why this is so powerful coming from him. David, David knew a thing or two about sin, didn't he now? David was a sinner just like we're sinners. And it's kind of like what I said last week. You know, Abraham, generally speaking, he was a good man. But, you know, Abraham was a sinner. And that was clear if you read the book of Genesis. Well, if it's clear for Abraham, it's just as clear for David. David, David generally speaking, yeah, let's, let's talk about it. David was a good man. He was a man after God's own heart, says the Bible. David loved the Lord. David fought for the Lord. David wrote beautiful poetry and worship songs to the Lord. But then one day, at the time when kings go out to battle, David stayed home, says the author of 2 Samuel. David decided to take it easy and to stay in his palace. And it was during this time of what you might call spiritual lethargy, he saw a woman bathing from his palace who was not his wife, and then he decided to go all Harvey Weinstein on her. And he seduced her. David was an adulterer. David was in that instance anyway. I know this is maybe hard for y'all to accept in light of the man that he was. He was a sexual predator in that moment. And it's even worse than that. You might say, come on, he's not wasn't that bad. He was also a murderer. He conspired to have this woman's husband killed, Uriah the Hittite, the prophet Nathan. Don't take my word for it. Take the prophet Nathan's word for it. He rebuked David. He said his actions were evil, great wickedness in the sight of the Lord, 2 Samuel 12, chapter 12, verse 9. So why, why am I doing this? Why, why am I belaboring this point? Let's go back to Psalm 32, 1 and 2. Let's go back to Romans 4, 7 and 8. When David writes, Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven. He's not talking hypothetically. He's not like, oh, you guys over there, those of you who have transgressions, blessed are you when those things are covered. Not me, I'm a good guy, you're a bad guy. That is not David at all. When David says, blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, he's not saying blessed is that man over there. Blessed is that person over here. Blessed are us Gentiles 3,000 years later. This is intensely personal for David. He said, blessed is the man right here. I am a sinful man. And the reason I'm blessed is not because I'm sinful. It's because my sins have been covered. And God has looked past that and removed my transgressions. This is intensely personal. And I mean, this is the same David who wrote Psalm 51. And David said there, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence. 
and take not your Holy Spirit from me. David was a sinner who needed salvation from the Lord. Just like Abraham, just like us. And David knew that the path to salvation, the path to justification, the path to having your sins removed was not by works. He couldn't do enough to compensate for his sin. He knew it had to be by faith. And so that's why he says, verse 8, this is Paul quoting David, blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. That man is blessed. That person is blessed. That word count there in, uh, in Psalm 32, it's the same Hebrew word that's used in Genesis 15, 6 to talk about Abraham. Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. It's the Hebrew word chashav. Chashav, it's, it's an accounting term. My wife's an accountant. She did our taxes yesterday. She would like this word, chashav. And then the Greek word that's used in the LXX for these passages, but also the Greek word that Paul uses here is legizomai. Lugizomai, counted, credited. Here's how the math works. Here's how the, the accounting work. It's actually a great thing. Jesus gets credited our sin on the cross. He takes our sin, puts it on him, on his account, and he pays for it. And then, by transfer, Jesus' righteousness that he had, never sinning, came into our world, lived among us, not a sin on him, his perfectness, his righteousness gets credited to our account. It's the best accounting in the world. We don't deserve that. Jesus pays our debts. We get his rewards. What do you think about that, Harvest Decatur? That is blessedness. That's what it means to be blessed in the Christian sense. Not in the worldly sense, in the Christian sense. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Go ahead and write this down as number two. Here's the second command that Paul gives. Sola fide is the source of spiritual blessing. It's also an equal opportunity justifier. It's an equal opportunity justifier. You know, one of the things that I love about Christianity, and I'll just tell you right now, I love Christianity, the truths of Christianity, because God does not discriminate. He doesn't discriminate against us, not in terms of justification. There is no hierarchy in Christianity. The ground is level at the foot of the cross. Talked about this this last week. I love that about Christianity. Faith in Christ alone is an equal opportunity justifier. There is no discrimination here. And you know why I love that? It's, it's because everybody discriminates in our world. Everybody discriminates. And I get really tired of people who accuse Christianity of discriminating when actually the world is full of discrimination God is an equal opportunity justifier. God is no respecter of person, persons, and he is ready even now to justify anyone and everyone, regardless of their age, their race, their gender, their socioeconomic status, their sinfulness. Can wicked, wicked sinners be saved? Absolutely they can. Look at the Apostle Paul in the New Testament. 
God is no respecter of persons. God does not discriminate against anybody, and that's not true of anybody in this world. That's not true of anything in this world. We all discriminate. I'll give you a perfect example. I feel it, I find it really ironic when people in higher education talk about discrimination, actually accuse Christianity of being discriminatory. When it, if you look at higher education, especially the Ivy Leagues, this is where it's the worst. The Ivy Leagues are the most discriminating places in the world. Do you know who in here can get into the Ivy League schools? None of us. That's the answer. We're all discriminated against. And, and in order to get in those schools, you know, you have, you have to know somebody. You have to have a great SAT or ACT score. You have to have this perfect record. And then even then, if you apply to these schools thinking you might get in, you know what their acceptance rate is? On average, it's 8% of the people who apply. Do you know who those schools discriminate against? 92% of the people that apply. That is the way of life in this world. We all do that. I'll give you another example of discrimination. Okay, if you were sick, you went to the doctor, you need an operation, would you let me operate on you? Why not? Are you discriminating against me? You're discriminating against me, aren't you? You won't let me operate on Why? Because I don't have an MD after my name? I'll tell you right now, if that's true, if that's true of you, I hope it is, that doesn't hurt my feelings because I don't want you operating on me either. Our entire world works this way, and yet here it is, sola fide. There is no distinction between Jew or Gentile. God is willing and ready and able to save anybody without discrimination. Here's what Paul says in verse Nine, is this blessing, this blessing that David just spoke about, is this blessing only for the circumcised? Is this blessing of justification by faith only for the Jews? That's what Paul's saying here. Circumcision is shorthand for Jewish. Uncircumcision is shorthand for Gentiles. So is this blessing of sola fide only for the Jews? Does not God discriminate when he... When it does, does God discriminate when it comes to justification? Paul, he actually asks something similar at the end of chapter 3, if you want to look back at this for a moment. Chapter 3, verse 30, Paul says, Is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also. Is this blessing then only for the circumcised? Or is it also for the uncircumcised? Answer, it's, it's for more than just the circumcised. Red and yellow, black and white, they are precious in God's sight. God says elsewhere in Galatians, Paul recounting or uh, recording the words inspired by the Holy Spirit. I could say God says this. I could say Paul says this. Both are true. Paul says this in Galatians, that there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female. We are all one in Christ Jesus. Are you all with me? God is an equal opportunity justifier. Sola fide has leveled the playing field. It's not about your works. It's not about your ethnicity. It's not about your socioeconomic status. It's about your faith. Do you have faith in Christ or not? Look at the middle of verse 9. This is fascinating to me how Paul argues for this. He says, For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. That's based on Genesis 15:6. We looked at that last week. Abraham believed God, it was counted to him as righteousness. Paul now goes to the rhetorical questions. This is what Paul's good at. He says, how then was it counted to Abraham? To answer that, you might say, by faith. It was credited to him by faith. 
And if you're saying that right now, correct. Good job. You answered that question correctly. This question's a little tougher. Paul's next question is, when was it counted to him? Was it counted before or after he had been circumcised? It's an interesting argument. Now, the Jews in Paul's day would be able to answer this right away because they, they would know. I mean, this is kind of a pickle for us because we're Gentiles. We're like, yeah, when did that happen? And I need to check my Bible again and read through Genesis. Well, a Jew in Paul's day would know right away. Oh, yeah, well, you know, Abraham was called in Genesis 11. He was promised to be a great nation, Genesis 12. He made a covenant with God in Genesis 15. That's when his faith was credited to him as righteousness, Genesis 15. He made a huge mistake with Hagar in Genesis 16. And then he was circumcised in Genesis 17. You guys knew all that, didn't you? Y'all didn't even have to review. A Jew would know that. So back to the question now. Let's think about this. When was Abraham's faith credited to him as righteousness? It was in Genesis 15, right before God made a covenant with him. And then Abraham was circumcised in Genesis 17. Everybody with me? How much time passed between Genesis 15 and Genesis 17? Well, in Genesis 16, it tells us that Abraham was 86 years old. In Genesis 17, he was 99. He got circumcised at age 99, which means he was a Gentile until he was 99. So 13 years. Abraham was an uncircumcised, believing Gentile for at least 13 years. Everybody with me? This is a bit of a technical argument, but if you follow, if you follow what Paul is saying here, you understand that your salvation isn't built upon circumcision or works or any other thing. Some of you right now, I can see it on your faces. You're, you're saying, this is fascinating, Pastor Tony, really, but what does this have to do with anything? What does this have to do with my life? What does this have to do? Why is he even talking about circumcision? Here's why. It's incredibly important. Paul is trying to prove to you you should know it already, but if you don't, he's trying to prove to you from the Old Testament, Abraham wasn't saved by his works. He wasn't even circumcised until 13 years at least after he had saving faith. That's the argument. Paul says at the end of verse 10, it was not after, but before he was circumcised. Abraham was a saved, uncircumcised Gentile for at least 13 years. Ergo... You're not saved by your works. Abraham wasn't saved by his works. You're not saved by your ethnicity either. You're saved by faith. And to that you might say, come on, Pastor Tony, no one, no one in our day says you need to be saved by circumcision. That's true. That's true. They were saying that in Paul's day. People were, read the book of Galatians. Read Acts 15. People were saying, you've got to be circumcised as a Gentile. You can't just, can't just have faith. But people don't say that in our day, but let's, let's replace the word circumcision with another word. Some other work. Let's replace it with the word baptism. Are you saved before, during, or after baptism? Let's replace circumcision with church attendance. Are you saved before, during, or after you went to church or 
Did you lose it when you didn't go to church? Let's talk about communion. Let's talk about daily Bible reading. Let's talk about evangelism. Is your salvation dependent on those things? Dependent, let's take communion. Is your salvation dependent on regularly taking communion here at church? I sure hope not. I'll tell you the truth. We had planned to take communion today. It was on my schedule, wasn't it? It was on my sermon schedule. And just due to some logistical issues and some things, we had to cancel it. So we canceled communion today. Are you guys going to lose your salvation over that? Anybody worried about that? And you might say, Pastor Tony, you know, I love communion. I love baptism. I love Bible reading. I love all these things. Why are you so down on it, Pastor Tony? You need to be more balanced. You guys know me. I love communion. <laughs> I do. It made me sad we had to cancel today. I love baptism. I love it. It's my favorite thing to do as a pastor. Baby dedication too, that's fun too, but, but baptism. I love baptism. Bible reading, Bible reading, I love Bible reading. It's changed my life over the last 30 years. I love evangelism. I love coming to church. I love all of that. Here's what I'm going to tell you right now. If you make those things necessary for your salvation, like some people made circumcision in Paul's day, you don't make those things greater. You cheapen them. You cheapen them. You know why you cheapen them? I, well, I need, to, I need to be baptized in order to say, I need to keep taking communion. I need to evangelize. I need to do these things. You know why you cheapen them? You're telling God, Jesus, your death on the cross, it wasn't enough. It's not enough. I need more. I need works. I need to do stuff. I need to do something to, to get saved or to stay saved. And that cheapens those things. You know what else it cheapens? And this, this terrifies me. It cheapens the blood of Jesus that was sufficient enough to pay for our sins. So I love those things. But those things cannot be combined with faith Faith plus works, Pastor Tony. Sola fide plus. No, it's faith alone. Some of you right now, maybe wrestling through this, you might say, well, Pastor Tony, should we get baptized then? Yes. Should we take communion? Yes. Should we read our Bibles every day? Yes. Should we evangelize lost people? Should we... Should we go to our small, small group? Should we go to church? Should, should I as a husband love my wife as Christ loves the church? Should I do these things? And, and here's what I think you're asking in those moments. And I've asked this question of myself too. Tony, what is the intersection of faith and works? Because the Bible speaks about both. Sola fide. How do we make sense of that in light of this expectation from the Lord that we do get baptized and we do take communion and we do bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Here's the answer. Write this down as number three. Sola fide is the basis for all God-honoring obedience. 
the God-honoring obedience is not combined with faith. It doesn't trump faith. It's the natural outworking of our faith. Y'all with me? Let me say it this way. Genesis 15 is the basis for Genesis 17. Abraham's faith in Genesis 15 is the basis for his obedience of circumcision in Genesis 17. And also Genesis 19, when Abraham rescued Lot. And also Genesis 22, when Abraham took Isaac, the promised son, up to Mount Mount Moriah. And here's something that might encourage you. In between Genesis 15, Abraham's faith, and Genesis 17, when he got circumcised, there's this incident in Genesis 16 where Abraham made a big mistake with Hagar, made her a concubine, tried to enact God's promise on his own. So this means that even after Abraham had saving faith, he made mistakes. Did you know that? Some of you are like, phew, that's good. Because I do too, Pastor Tony. Paul says this in verse 11. He says, Abraham received the sign of circumcision. The sign. It was a sign. God took the sexual organ of the man and he put a physical seal on it saying, I will bring a son by this instrument. I will bring a son by your seed. That's the purpose of it. It was a sign of Abraham's faith. It was, it was a sign of the great offspring that Abraham would, would bring about. In fact, a greater offspring than Isaac, a true and better Isaac that would come through the Jewish people. The serpent crusher of Genesis 3 that was promised to the, to the Israelite people. Who, I'm ta- who am I talking about there? I'm not talking about Isaac. I'm talking about Jesus. Abraham received the sign, look at verse 11, of circumcision as a seal. Sign sealed. In the words of Stevie Wonder, sign, sealed, delivered. I'm yours. That's what Paul is talking about here with Abraham. Abraham received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith when he was still uncircumcised. We don't have circumcision in the New Testament church. But we got signs, don't we now? What do I say every time I baptize somebody here? This is the outward sign of the inward work. And that work is not our work. That's the work of Jesus saving a soul. This is the outward sign. The water symbolizes your death to self. I'm glad it symbolizes. I'm glad I don't really kill you when I baptize you. It's the sign of an inward work. Death to self. New life in Christ. It's a beautiful sign. I love it. What, what do we signify, sign? What do we signify when we take communion? This is the bread. It signifies Jesus' body, broken for us. Take and eat in remembrance of This is the cup symbolizing the blood of Christ shed for our sins. We have all kinds of signs in our world, by the way. Here's a sign. Y'all see this sign? I have this here. My wife has one that matches mine. Her ring is more feminine than mine. And by feminine, I mean expensive. But it matches mine. Now, I just took this off. If I take this off right now in front of you, does that mean Pastor Tony's no longer married? He just lost it. Is that what's signified when I take this off? If I, let me put it this way. Let's say I went water skiing with Alan White. And whenever I go water skiing, I take pretty hard falls. And let's say this thing just 
shot off of my hand and ended at the bottom of Lake Decatur. Does that mean I'm not married anymore? Of course not. Of course not. And people likewise got saved. Circumcision is a sign. People got saved in the Old Testament without getting circumcised. Can people be saved without baptism? Yes. In fact, it needs to precede their water baptism, in my theological opinion. Obedience follows faith. Obedience is the outworking of faith. In all these categories, Jared Wilson says it this way. You can read this on the screen. We are not set free by our obedience. We are not. You are not the skinny frog paddling your way out of that bucket of milk. We are set free to obedience, for obedience. Here's how Martin Luther said it. We talked about this in my small group last Thursday. I love this quote. It so perfectly encapsulates what I'm trying to say here. We are saved by faith alone, says Luther, but the faith that saves is never alone. It produces works. It produces works. Paul says the purpose was to make him, Abraham, the father of all who believe without being circumcised so that righteousness would be counted to them as well. What's Paul saying here? That's kind of confusing, I know, as we read it. What's he saying at the end of verse 11 there? Let me paraphrase what Paul is saying with a song. Father Abraham had many sons, many sons had Father Abraham. Right? That song is a masterpiece. (laughs) That is a piece of Americana. And I remember even singing it as a kid and thinking to myself, what in the world are we singing? What is that? Father Abraham, I am one of you. I'm not Jewish. I remember saying, I'm not Jewish. What are we talking about there? We're not talking about the fact that we're Jewish, and that's too bad. I want to be Jewish. I love Jewish culture. I'm a Judeophile. Jewish people are cool, and Hebrew is the best language in the world. I'm not Jewish, but I sing that song about Father Abraham. Why? It's because... Abraham was a pagan believing Gentile for 13 years, at least until he turned 99. He was a Gentile longer than he was a Jew. And he is my father, not by seed, not by offspring, not by ethnicity. He is my father by faith, by faith, not by flesh. Look at verse 12. Now Paul goes to the Jewish people, Jewish believers, and he says, and to make him the father of the circumcised, who are not merely circumcised, but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. In other words, Father Abraham is not just the spiritual father of the uncircumcised by faith. He's also the spiritual father of the circumcised by faith. Christian Jews, like Paul, like Peter, like James, like Andrew, also in our day, Messianic Jews, like my buddy Justin Crone up in Chicago, like, like my professors at Moody Bible Institute, Michael Wexler and Michael Rydelnik, two Jewish professors. They walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. They walk in the faith of Father Abraham As Jews, I walk in the faith of my father Abraham as a Gentile. We all walk. Do we all? 
Do you walk in the faith of your father, Abraham? Do you have this saving faith? Don't let me speak for you. You might say, what, what does that look like, Pastor Tony? What, put that in New Testament terms that I can understand. Well, Paul says elsewhere, Romans 10, that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, Paul says if you believe that, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. Have you done that? Have you put your faith in Christ? Have you confessed him as Lord of your life? Have you believed in his death that paid for your sin? And not just his death, his resurrection from the dead that establishes the victory that will lead to your own resurrection someday. You know why I don't fear death? Because when I die, I'm going to be raised. And someday I'm going to get a new body and a better body and live with God for eternity. What, what fear could be so fearful in this world? that that can't trump that fear. What if COVID-19, let's talk about that. Everybody's talking about it, let's talk about it. What if that was a little more deadly? Have you thought about this? I mean, what if it was Ebola? What if it was more like the Spanish flu in 1918? that killed between 20 and 50 million people worldwide. What if it was more like that? What if you couldn't quarantine yourself fast enough to get away from COVID-19 and it was a killer? Are you ready to meet your maker? Are you ready to die today? I can't speak for everybody in this room. I'm ready. I am ready. I'm not in a hurry. I'm not looking for the quickest exit ramp off this highway. But I'm ready. I'm ready to die at age 41, 42, 50, 60, 70. Are you ready? You're just trying to scare us, Pastor Tony. You're right, I'm trying to scare you. Because this is so much more important than a disease that might, I don't know, that might be just old news in about six weeks. But your sin still needs to be paid for by the blood of Jesus in order for you to experience eternity with the Lord. Are you ready? Are you ready? I heard a story this last week about Charles Spurgeon, the great... Baptist preacher from England. Spurgeon had these two little boys, these twin boys that he loved dearly. And he used to take them on these father-son outings. He used to take them to the graveyard. Sounds like fun, doesn't it? Time with dad. Let's go to the cemetery. And he'd take them to the cemetery and he would, he would show them these gravestones. And he'd, he'd read the names on the gravestone and then he would calculate year of birth, year of death, he would calculate how old they were when they died. And he'd say their name, and he'd say, age six, son. Read their names, age 10, 
age 12, age 50, age 100. Some of them live that long. And then he would lecture his boys, and he would tell them, are you ready for your death? Are you ready to meet your maker, boys? I like it. Father-son outings, that's great. I'm your pastor. Somebody's got to ask you. The media's not going to ask you. Are you ready to meet your maker? Are you ready now? Now, right now? I'll close with this. I've been reading a book recently by Eric Larson called The Splendid and the Vile. And it's a book about World War II and the, the bombing of Britain and what's called the Blitz. And this was months before we got into the war. And, and I didn't learn a whole lot about this when I was in school because, of course, the only thing we learned about World War II in school was that we came and we rescued everybody as Americans, right? <laughs> but before we came into the war, the, there was a lot of bravery in England and other places too, people that were trying to repel the Nazi regime and, I mean, you think COVID-19 is scary. You should have lived during this era. When the Nazis took over France, France, this powerful army, powerful navy, it just capitulated right before the, the Nazis. And the Germans took over Poland, and the Germans took over the Netherlands, and the Germans took over everybody. They signed a non-aggression treaty with Russia and with Italy, and everybody was terrified. And there were people out there who were actually encouraging Britain, even politicians, to capitulate. You know, just give up. We can't defeat the Germans. And the, the British people, thankfully, and I think in large part because Winston Churchill said, well, we will never surrender, they didn't give up. And they fought. And so the Germans, their strategy, and this is what this book is about, their strategy was we're just going to bomb that country into oblivion before we, you know, invade. And so they did. They bombed and they bombed and they bombed and they bombed London and they tried to bomb them into submission. They tried to bomb them into oblivion. And there's a moment in the book, I was reading this last week, where they actually bombed so indiscriminately that they hit the royal palace. And there was this moment where the king of England and the queen of England were in danger because the bombs were that close and the bombs were that severe. And they feared for their lives. And the king actually said that he, he felt this strange solidarity with the rest of the Londoners after he was bombed. And the queen said it even more dramatically than that. She said, I'm glad we were bombed. I'm glad this palace has been bombed because now I can look people in the East End in the face. We've experienced what the other people have experienced. We're like them. I think that's why she said that. I think that's what they mean by that. We're not just the king and queen. We're, we're Londoners like everybody else. And we've been bombed just like you have. I don't want to close this message talking about the king of England. Imagine if you will. A king better than the king of England. Bigger than the king of England. Not a constitutional monarchy. Not an absolute monarchy like the kings of old. But the sovereign creator of the world. Imagine that king who decided to come into our world of war and diseases and sin and brokenness 
humbly looking us in the face, experiencing temptation like we experience it, but, but without sin. And that king of kings willingly turned his body over to wicked people to be crucified and tortured and put to death so that he might pay for the sins of Gentiles in this room 2,000 years later. And he wasn't just put to death. Three days later, he was raised from the dead. And he sits at the right hand of God the Father, and he doesn't say to God the Father, obliterate those lousy humans who put me to death. He sits at the right hand of God the Father, and he says, my blood for them, my righteousness for them. They are saved through my works. My, my, my death, it paid for their sins. My righteousness has been credited to them because of their faith. I've told you all this before. Let me say it again. That's my king who I'm going to worship and I'm going to serve and I'm going to follow and I'm going to live with him forever. And I want you to be there. Bow with me in a word of prayer. I don't know every person in this room. I don't know every person who's watching this on Facebook Live, but wherever you are right now, I want you to know that you are a sinner. We are all sinners. We have all fallen in short of the glory of God because of our sin. And God has made a way for our sins to be paid for through faith. And you can have your sins paid for right now. Right now. In the quietness of your own heart. Tell your creator, I am a sinner. I cannot save myself. I'm not going to try anymore to earn your favor, your love, your righteousness. Instead, I put my faith in the righteous King, the Son of God, who died on the cross for my sins. I believe in my heart that he is Lord and I confess him as Lord. I believe in my heart that he not only died on that cross, but he was raised from the dead. And I confess him as my Lord, my King. Jesus, you are our King. We serve and we worship you. And death is not the end for us because you have made a way for us to have eternal life with you. And so, Lord, as long as we have life in this world, as long as we have breath, we're going to praise you, we're going to worship you, we're going to point people in your direction. Because you are our king. And we love you and we serve you. And we worship you. Let's stand together. Let's do that now.